Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 27. I wrapped up the last episode at the end of Judges Chapter 2, when the Israelites began the Judges period. This week, I'm picking up at the top of Chapter 3 and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 3 begins with more detail on what exactly the Israelites were up to. From the text, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs, which made God angry, again. The text relays that he, meaning God, into the hand of King Cushar-Rishathaim of Aram at Naharim, with them serving that king and those people for eight years. Towards the end of the period, they cried out to God, who raised up a deliverer. In this case, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord gave King Cushan Athraim of Aram into his hand. After this, they lived independently for forty years, until Othniel's death. All of this gives me a new king and place to cover. According to the text, Kushan Rishathaim was the king of Aram Naharim, likely located in northwest Mesopotamia. In the book of Judges, he was the first oppressor of the Israelites after their settlement in Canaan. They would live under his rule for eight years until their rescue at the hand of the first judge. There's nothing else in the text about this specific ruler though someone with a truncated version of the name does appear in a single sentence in the book of Habakkuk. Despite the scarcity, researchers have proposed several explanations for his biblical accounts. The Cushan may indicate Cushite origins, meaning the oldest son of Ham and therefore the grandson of Noah. Cush was also the father of Nimrod, said to be the first heroic warrior on earth. Cush is also identified with the land of Cush, thought to be the same as the ancient Sudan. Though, this would place it south of Egypt, in a ways from Canaan. Somewhere in here, this Cushite explanation becomes less and less plausible. Of course, it could also mean something else entirely. As for the Rishathaim, it literally translates from ancient Hebrew to double wickedness. Like, single wickedness wasn't enough. Obviously, he wasn't well regarded by the Israelites. Not that that would surprise anyone. What's more telling is that this suffix was applied to no one else in the biblical text. And what he was said to have done to the Israelites in this part of Judges wasn't outside of the norm from all of their oppressors. But since he was given this name by the Israelites, there was likely more to the story and it just didn't make it to the text. He was described as the king of Aram Naharim, which translates to Aram between the rivers. This is thought to have been the name for the land of the ancient Aramines in a region of Mesopotamia, likely north of Canaan in modern Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, and the surrounding area. Aram Naharim would also merit a mention in the Amarna letters, meaning its existence isn't just in the Bible. 
In many sources, the northern part of Aram Naharaim was called Paddan Aram. This was the region where Abraham settled with his family after leaving Ur of the Chaldees, while slowly en route to Canaan. Aram Naharaim is mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. In Genesis, it is used somewhat interchangeably with the names Paddan Aram and Haran to denote the place where Abraham stayed briefly with his father Terah's family after leaving Ur. It was also the place where some later patriarchs got some of their wives instead of marrying Canaanite women. Both the Septuagint and Josephus translate the name as the more general term Mesopotamia, though the translation of the name as Mesopotamia was not consistent in the Septuagint, which would in other places use a more precise translation, specifically Mesopotamia of Syria along with the rivers of Syria. It was later, but still ancient writers, who would use the name Mesopotamia for all of the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Do note, though, that the usage of the Hebrew name Aram Naharaim is not the same as this later usage of Mesopotamia, with the Hebrew term referring to a more specific northern region within Mesopotamia. And that's about the extent of what's known about Aram Naharaim and its king, Kushan Rishathaim. Next up in the text is Eglon. I covered this place in Volume 1, Chapter 7, Episode 8, released on January 1, 2021, which, as hard as it is to believe, was over a year ago. After Othniel saved the Israelites from that doubly wicked king, and they lived free for 40 years, they fell back into their same cycle, doing again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this led to God's anger, which led to the strengthening of King Eglon of Moab against Israel. He would form an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Then the allied kingdoms defeated Israel, taking control of the city of Palms, commonly believed to be Jericho, the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. It was towards the end of this period that they cried out. God then anointed another judge, in this case described as a deliverer. This judge was Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, described as a left-handed man. What follows is a story I've covered before, about how Ehud, through trickery, assassinated King Eglon. I'll avoid repeating that story and just note that as he escaped, Ehud passed beyond the sculpted stones, perhaps the same stones found at Gilgal. If so, I covered these in Chapter 7, Episode 6, released over a year ago in December 2020. If these weren't the same stones as those at Gilgal, there's not enough other information given in the text to narrow down a more specific but different location. After escaping to Gilgal, Ehud was said to have made it to Sirah. This is thought to have been a dense forest, but since it's the only mention in the text, it too has been lost to history. There was a battle that followed, but I've covered that previously too. After all of this, the land rested for another 80 years. Ehud was followed by Shamgar, and despite the ongoing cycle of sinning and crying out for help, Apparently, that wasn't the case in this instance. 
as it seems Shemgar immediately followed Ehud, though he did kill some 600 with an ox goad and was said to have delivered Israel. My thinking on this is that Ehud delivered one geographic region and Shemgar another, perhaps sequentially, perhaps somewhat concurrently. And that's how Judges chapter 3 wraps up. But I can take a minute and cover this farming implement, the ox goad. A goad is a traditional farming tool used to spur or guide livestock, usually oxen, hence the name, when they are pulling a plow or a cart. It's also used sometimes to round up cattle. Usually, it's a type of long stick with a pointed end and is very similar to a cattle prod. The word itself is from Middle English, and that the Israelites would have called it something else shouldn't surprise you. This isn't the only time in ancient literature or history it was used as a weapon. In Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, Oedipus's father, Laius, tried to kill his son with a goad when they accidentally met at a crossroads. In other religions, goads in various guises are used as icons, such as the elephant goad in the hand of the Hindu deity Ganesha. The literary image of prodding a reluctant or lazy animal, or even man, made this a useful metaphor for sharp urging, to goad, goading, sometimes in a literal sense, others metaphorical or figurative. These could take the form of a prick of conscience, the nagging of a mate, or the words of the wise, as found in Ecclesiastes 12. The sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Dwell on that last bit for a minute. The Apostle Paul, when he recounted his Damascus Road experience, the story of his conversion to King Herod Agrippa II, and found in Acts 26, he told Herod of a voice he heard saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some translations of the actual account of his conversion earlier in Acts also use the same phrase. Circling back to the goad that Shemgard wielded, it's popularly thought that before the Israelites had mastered ironworking, they relied on the Philistines to sharpen their goads, as well as other metal tools, such as their plows, mattocks, forks, and axes. And now for something completely unexpected. In the Latin alphabet, the letter L, as in literally, is derived from the Semitic crook or goad, which stood for L in those languages. This may have originally been based on an Egyptian hieroglyph that was adapted by early Semites for alphabetic purposes. I didn't see that one coming. And that gets us to the end of Judges 3. Chapter 4 begins after Ehud's death, with the Israelites slipping again. This time, they would fall to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hera Shahagoyim. I covered the place Hazor in Chapter 7, Episode 11. As for its king, he defeated the Israelites about 160 years after Joshua's death. Some propose he didn't defeat the entirety of them, but just the northern tribes. 
Whichever group he did defeat, he would control them for the next 20 years, which is the stopping place I'll choose for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the history of Jabin's commanding general, Sisera. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.